Hello, true crime lovers. I'm your host, Julia Gallucci, and you're listening to Crime Soup, a true crime podcast told week after week. Today, I'm excited to be recording from an actual studio so I can make the sound quality a million times better for you guys. And I wanted to start looking into cases outside the U.S. to learn more about how foreign countries operate during investigations. So I'm sorry if I butcher any names in this case, but I promise I definitely will. Anyways, today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous unsolved homicide cases in Finland. This is the Lake Bottom Murders. On Saturday, June 4th, 1960, four Finnish teenagers had decided to go on a camping trip. 15-year-olds Irmeli, oh my gosh, I do not know how to say this last name, but I'm going to try my best, Irmeli Bajorkland and Anya Maki, and their 18-year-old boyfriends Seppo Boisman and Nils Gustafsson, they decided to go camping along the shore of Lake Bottom, which was near the city of Espo. This lake near Espo was actually a pretty popular hangout spot for teens in the area, so this wasn't out of the norm. Their trip started out as an innocent camping trip, just teenagers having fun and hanging out with their significant others, but soon their innocent trip turned into something sinister. During the early hours of the morning on Sunday, June 5th, three of these teenagers would be found dead and one badly injured. Maki Bjorklund and Boisman were stabbed and bludgeoned to death, and Gustafsson had a concussion, a broken jaw, and bruises to the face. He was the only survivor of the massacre. When first reading about this, I was shocked not only by the gruesomeness of this crime, but the fact that one of the victims did live, but the assailant was never found. Gustafsson said he had no memory of the attack, except for a glimpse of the attacker with bright red eyes and clothed in black, but this little bit of information didn't give investigators much to work with. There were a couple witnesses involved in this case, which I actually found shocking too because the lake sounds like a moderately remote area, but it was reported that around 6am a group of boys birdwatching just a little distance away from the campsite had seen a collapsed tent that had been torn and slashed. They saw a blonde man walking away from the tent. While these boys did notice this, they didn't think much of it. They continued on with what they're doing, but later that morning, a local passed by the tent and stumbled upon the bloodied and battered bodies of Gustafsson and Bjorkland laying on top of the torn tent. It was also noted that the teens' bodies were found around 11 a.m. by a local carpenter named Esko Johansson, and Esko alerted the police immediately when he discovered the scene, and police arrived to the campsite by noon that day. When arriving on the campsite and conducting their investigation, police noticed protruding and strange disturbances on the scene. And basically, it was noted that the attacker had injured the victims from outside the tent rather than the inside. He used a knife and an unidentified instrument to strike the victims from the outsides of the tent. These weapons have never been found to this day, but this explains why Gustafsson may have not gotten a good look at his attacker. Also, this wasn't just a random attack. The killer also took several items with him before leaving. One of the items were the keys to the victim's motorcycles that they had driven to the campsite on. 
Additionally, Gustafsson's shoes and multiple articles of clothing were found about 500 meters from the scene. Gustafsson and Bjorklund were found lying on top of the tent. Bjorklund was the most injured out of all the victims, so she was found undressed from the waist down and had multiple stab wounds. It was noted that she was even stabbed several times after she was already dead. The other two teenagers' injuries were much less brutal than Bjorklund's. But, of course, investigations going how they do, there were a couple flaws to the police's investigation on this day. And this caused major errors in the future for them. For instance, the police did not cordon off the scene and also did not record specific details of the scene. Basically, using a cordon at the scene is taping off or guarding a scene to serve as a deterrent for any people without authorization to access the scene. This is a pretty important step in investigations as it helps protect the scene against potential damage and contamination. Not only did police fail to do this, but they additionally did not record details of the scene. Not doing this caused the scene to be immediately contaminated and allowed a crowd of police officers and others to walk around and basically just disturb the evidence. I feel like this does happen often in cases, basically compromising evidence and creating an error so early on in the case that makes it hard to really recover from these types of mistakes. Resulting from poor investigation practices, soldiers had to be called onto the scene to assist with the search for missing items around the lake and scene. Several of these items were actually never found. So there were a handful of suspects during early investigations, but two particular suspects stood out the most to me. One major suspect was Vladimir Geilstrom. I don't know if I said that right, but sounds right to me. <laughs> Many locals suspected Geilstrom. He was a kiosk keeper near Lake Bottom and had been known to be hostile towards campers. Townspeople stated that Galstrom was violent, cut down tents, and even threw rocks at people. And while this did give police interest in Galstrom, there was no hard evidence found that linked him to the actual murders. It was also revealed later that people had said that they saw him coming back from the murder scene the day of the murder, but they were too scared to call the police at the time. Investigators considered Galstrom disturbed and were never able to do any DNA tests on him. He drowned in Lake Bottom in 1969, most likely from suicide, so we will never be able to get any DNA testing from him. Although, before his death in 1969, he had supposedly drunkenly confessed to the murders. He even said that he hid the murder weapon in his property in a well, which he filled a few days after the murders. Although police thoroughly investigated this claim in Galstrom's property, nothing was found in the end, but according to his wife, he had an alibi. She said he'd been in bed with her on that night in 1960, and later police ruled Galstrom's confession as false and that he could not have been the killer. There is a lot of controversy about Galstrom and whether or not he is the killer. There was even a book released in 2006 about him, and it spoke of him being the killer and brought up the theory in detail. The book also claimed that the police ignored various pieces of evidence because of language barriers. This may have hindered the investigation even more than it already had in the beginning of the investigation. Another prime suspect in the case was Hans Osman. And 
every time I was reading about anything about this suspect, there was always a joke about his last name. So everyone get their laughs out early. But actually, a large amount of public suspicion focused on Hans, and he remained a suspect all the way up until 2004. So, what, that's 44 years? That's a long time to be a suspect. He lived very close to the shore of Lake Bottom, and there was an apparent rumor that he was a former KGB spy. While living in the area, Hans earned a reputation as a recluse and a former spy. Additionally, it was reported that a local physician claimed that Hans had come into Helsinki Surgical Hospital the morning of the murders and had red stains on his clothes and dirt under his nails. Hospital staff also claimed that Hans was acting very anxious and hostile while at the hospital. Police did look into this claim but found that Hans had an alibi, so they actually never even looked into the stained clothing for further investigations. In all honesty, I do think that this was a mistake made by police. If investigators had taken this clothing in as evidence, we'd have the DNA technology that we have today to test the stains to truly find out if they were the victim's blood. Hans was still raising major red flags even after the hospital visit. News was released about the murders and the killer potentially having blonde hair, and after hearing this, Hans cut off his long blonde hair immediately, which of course looked very suspicious. After the murders, the lone survivor, Gustafsson, was put under hypnosis to give a description of the killer. A composite sketch of the attacker was created after this hypnosis, and the sketch looks a lot like Hans, which makes him look even more suspicious than he already looks. I'm going to put this up on the Crime Soup Instagram page so you guys can really look at the similarity of Hans in the sketch. So there were also various other people of interest and suspects in this case. And just to name a few others, there was Polly Luoma, a runaway from a local work department. But Luoma was cleared pretty quickly due to his alibi being confirmed. There was also Penti C. Soininen? Soin... I have no clue how to say his last name, but his first name is Penty with two T's, but he was also a suspect for the murders. He had been convicted of a number of violent crimes in the past and had allegedly admitted to committing the murders while in prison, but some people believe that this was just a jailhouse brag in the end, but of course the truth will never be known because Penty hanged himself in 1969. So at this point, months and then years started to pass after the brutal murders, and police were unable to gather any remaining details from Gustafsson, who was, of course, the only survivor of the massacre. The case became commonly known around Finland, and everyone was aware of the Lake Bottom murders. Parents were highly alert and warned children not to be out after dark in case the killer was still around. So this case began to grow cold, and continued to pass by, but this all changed in March 2004, after 44 years since the infamous Lake Bottom murders, DNA evidence finally was found on a new suspect. Prosecuting attorneys identified a suspect they claimed had motive for the murders. The new development of DNA technology and forensic sciences gave investigators something they did not have access to in the 1960s, and this new suspect, which was actually I feel like both shocking and not shocking 
The new identified suspect was Nils Gustafsson, the lone survivor of the murders 44 years ago. So Nils had never even been on the investigator's radar. After the attack, he was severely hurt and he had a broken jaw and bruises and a concussion, like I mentioned earlier. So this led police to believe he could not have been involved in the attack, but not only was Gustafsson's body injured, he literally lost memory of the attack. All he could recall was a shadowy figure attacking the tent, and police assumed he was just in a state of shock. After receiving this new evidence, police went back to square one. They gathered all the physical evidence and information they'd known since June 4th in 1960. So, going back to square one, it was known that the teens arrived at the campsite on motorcycles, and these motorcycles were still at the site when police arrived. Something I spoke of earlier that was strange at the time was that the motorcycles were present, but police noticed that the keys were missing. I'm thinking maybe the attacker might have taken this as a token, but additionally, Gustafsson's shoes were found about half a mile from the campsite, and these shoes became a new focal point of the investigation. In 2004, Gustafsson's shoes were taken to a crime lab at Finland's National Bureau of Investigation. Forensic scientists tested the shoes, and what came back did not look good for Gustafsson. Not only was there blood from the victims found on Gustafsson's shoes, but none of Gustafsson's own blood was found on the shoes. Knowing this information, it kind of builds a storyline for me. If Gustafsson was the attacker, his shoes were found so far away from the crime scene because he was trying to hide them for this exact reason. Knowing they'd be a strong piece of evidence after the attack, Gustafsson hid them so the crime would not lead back to him. And it's crazy to me that the new development of DNA technology in the early 2000s helped crack a half a century old case. This blood evidence on the shoes may have never been discovered without it. Anyways, back to the shoes. Basically, the main question is, why wasn't Gustafsson's DNA found on the shoes if he was supposedly attacked with the other victims? So this information left investigators perplexed, but it left them to believe that Gustafsson was behind the attack. It was concluded that the timeline of events that occurred was that he attacked everyone at the campsite, hid his shoes far from the scene, and then injured himself to make himself look innocent. Knowing all this information still doesn't answer a lot of questions, though. For instance, if Gustafsson was the attacker, what was his motive? Investigators theorized that there was some jealousy and conflict going on between Gustafsson, Boisman, and the girls. And later in court, a nearby camper provided solid evidence for this theory. The camper testified and said that they'd seen Gustafsson and Boisman arguing the night of the murders, and even got mildly physical. The camper also noted that Gustafsson seemed extremely intoxicated at the time. Investigators believed that there was possible romantic conflict between Gustafsson and Bjorklund. They thought Bjorklund declined Gustafsson, or maybe Boisman even was making an advance on Bjorklund, and this insinuated a fight between the two boys. So these theories could explain why Bjorklund was severely hurt more than the other victims. Bjorklund was Gustafsson's girlfriend at the time, and she had been stabbed 15 times. 
Police suspected that Gustafsson's friends kicked him out of the tent after so much arguing and tension between all of them, and then Gustafsson retaliated and attacked them from outside the tent, slashing a knife through the tent until his friends were dead. So all of this evidence and the alleged story against Gustafsson was enough for the district prosecutor to charge Gustafsson on three counts of murder and a potential life sentence. And Gustafsson's trial started on August 4th, 2005. During the trial, Gustafsson's lawyer, Rita Lepinami, I'm not sure how to say that last name, she argued in the defense of Gustafsson. She stated that Boisman had broken Gustafsson's jaw after their argument, and this left Gustafsson in no condition to attack anyone, especially not multiple people. Rita also criticized this testimony of the camper, who stayed quiet about the alleged fight between Gustafsson and Boisman, even though she had supposedly witnessed it 45 years ago. This eyewitness had concealed this information with no identifiable reason, and the camper couldn't recall important details about the event. I think both of these points are pretty good arguable points, but generally I don't really know where I stand knowing all the information that I do know about this case. Also during the trial, after hearing the connection between the evidence found on the shoes and the murders, Gustafsson defended himself, saying that the shoes were stolen from him and worn by the killer. The prosecution did not buy this. They argued that Gustafsson hid the shoes away from the crime scene in an attempt to conceal any evidence. So yeah, in my opinion, I don't really buy this either. I mean, I don't really see why the killer would put his shoes on and then leave the crime scene and then take them off and leave them somewhere. If anything, why wouldn't he just leave with the shoes if he wanted to leave with the shoes? It doesn't really make sense to me and I don't think it made sense to a lot of people. So this claim was just thrown out. Also, a police officer named Marku Tuominen, don't know how to say the last name again, so we're going to call him Marku. He also claimed that Gustafsson seemed unbothered after his arrest. He reportedly said, what's done is done. So it sounds like Gustafsson is not really worried about his trial in general. But during his trial, Gustafsson generally stuck to the same story he'd been telling for 44 years. He said he couldn't remember anything about the attack, and he did claim that there was never an argument between him and Boisman. So I keep reading over and over again that Gustafsson didn't remember the attack, but not remembering the attack doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't do it. So that's just something to think about, too. So the court soon came to a verdict about Gustafsson after his trial, and they found that they were unable to convict Gustafsson to life in prison due to there being insufficient evidence. And physical evidence wasn't enough to convict Gustafsson due to the large amount of time that had passed since the attack. Gustafsson was then freed. Now, I think that the case of Gustafsson is generally really confusing and controversial, when I first started reading it, I was like, oh, it's it's him. But then after reading into some things, I was like, I'm really not sure at this point. Uh, there's a large amount of people that believe Gustafsson is responsible for the murder. And then there's a lot of people that think he's innocent. For instance, some think that Gustafsson wasn't responsible due to the various different aspects of the scene. 
Basically, if Gustafsson was the attacker, he would have had to hide the murder weapons, being the knife and whatever blunt object was used, and this would be really difficult for him because he was severely hurt. But not only was he injured, if he was able to hide the weapons, it's likely police would have found them in the surrounding area just like they did with the shoes. Also, people spoke on the fact that if Gustafsson was jealous and angry at both Boisman and Bjorklund, then why did he also kill Maki? He didn't have a motive to kill her, but I think that one is pretty simple to answer. If he'd already murdered two people, he wouldn't want a witness to go to the police, so that's why he would have killed Maki. I also read from a lot of different sources that people believe there may have been two killers involved, which I do find pretty plausible if you think about it. Stabbing and bludgeoning three people to death and severely hurting another doesn't really sound like the job of one person, especially when Bjorklund was stabbed literally 15 times. Either it was a two-man job or a very skilled singular killer in my opinion. Overall, I think you could see this case two ways, but in the end, Gustafsson was freed after his trial. Almost 60 years have passed since the murders in June of 1960, and no new answers have been found, and the massacre is still a large part of Finnish history, and even one Finnish heavy metal band named themselves Children of Bottom in 1993. They even created a craft beer in relation to the lake using water straight from Lake Bottom, it's called Lake Bottom Pre-Prohibition Lager, so go get your Lake Bottom Lager in honor of this episode. <laughs> Additionally, some have spoken on Gustafsson's memory loss claim. This kind of relates to what I said earlier. Basically, they said even if Gustafsson said he doesn't have any memory of the attack, how does he know that he didn't do it? But this kind of claim can't really be explained logically in a courtroom, so it's kind of seen as insufficient. So there are still so many questions I have about this case, and others do too. I feel like a lot of people's questions come back to Gustafsson's shoes, and why were Gustafsson's shoes found so far from the campsite? If the killer was Gustafsson, why would the killer have a reason to move them at all? The location of the shoes really doesn't make sense. Additionally, there wasn't much information or ever an answer about the blonde man seen walking from the crime scene in 1960, although it was noted that one of the suspects at the time, Hans, was blonde, like we talked about earlier. One last thing that I want to talk about is the whole theory that Gustafsson injured and stabbed himself to make himself look innocent. So if this is true, wouldn't there be a blood trail leading to wherever the murder weapon was hidden in the surrounding area? Basically, if Gustafsson hurt himself, then if he moved the murder weapon, there would be a trail basically leading to the weapon because he was bleeding. So after Gustafsson was clear of all the charges in 2005, and a lot of the murder suspects were dead, it seems as though the killer may not be found. And this triple homicide case is seen as a finished legend and has stayed relevant with the public for over half a century. There was even a horror film released just three years ago called Lake Bottom. It was inspired by the 1960 Lake Bottom murders, but it's not based on them. So if you do watch the film, don't get any ideas about this case because they're pretty general. 
But hopefully one day the victims of the bottom murders will have their killer brought to justice. If you're interested in learning more about the Lake Bottom murders and would like to view photos, visit the Crime Soup Instagram page at Crime Soup Podcast. Be sure to follow us and subscribe for brand new episodes. And if you did enjoy listening to this episode, don't forget to leave a review. Thanks for listening.